two, two, one, two. Hello. Oh, can you hear me? Good. Morning, everyone. Ah, there you are. I was wondering where you were. <laughs> Morning, everyone. Bring your conversations to a, uh, I was going to say a, a close, but to a pause. And then we can carry them on afterwards. Morning. Uh, my name's Phil. I'm going to speak today. Oh, hang on. Let me just, that. Very good. Uh, so I'm going to preach today, and we are back to Luke. We've been working our way through Luke, and we've had a bit of a, a break over the Advent period, and then a couple of preaches after that. So uh, do you want to get your Bibles or your Bible apps in your phones and turn to Luke 7? Luke 7, and we're going to start at verse... 11. Now, before we do, before we read that, I just thought I'd do a little intro before we jump in. Uh, there's a new film out, which I'm looking forward to seeing. Or I'm, not, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to see it. I'll, I'll read the reviews first. But there's a new film out called Poor Things. Have you heard about this? It's this director called um, Yorgos Yanthimos. And he's kind of a crazy director, and he does amazing films. They're not for everyone. But essentially, the reason I'm mentioning it is because Poor Things, this new film, is the latest version of... Dr. Frankenstein, essentially. Mary Shelley's Dr. Frankenstein. I'm sure you're all aware that Frankenstein is the doctor, not the monster. Yeah? And it's an old book from the 19th century, 18-something, uh, that she wrote. Uh, it's a very good book, actually. Um, anyway, we're still talking about that today. Uh, and you'll, 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 you'll see why I mentioned that in a minute. We're all kind of interested in life and death and whether people can be brought back to life. Um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Brian Johnson, guy in America, with the blueprints. I was chatting with John and Damon last week, and, and Damon mentioned this guy. I had to look him up. So Brian Johnson, he undergoes extensive, uh, he takes 111 pills every day. He has a cap that shoots red light into his head. He goes in this special machine and it's all anti-aging uh, stuff. And he's convinced that if he does this, it sounds pretty rigorous, and it sounds like he hasn't got any time to do anything else. Um, he thinks he's, he's not going to die. He genuinely thinks. He says that, um, that dying is optional. Oh, I know, crazy, right? Uh, and he's very rich. That's why he can afford to do it. So maybe he thinks that taxes are optional too. I don't know. <laughs> but... Um, um, we do have a, a fascination with uh, life and death. People wanting to bring someone back to life or creating life from nothing. Um, and our story today is about a time when that happened, when Jesus actually did that. He actually brought someone back to life. So, Luke 7, verse 11. Let's read it together, shall we? And then we'll go through, we'll go through the, the story together. Luke 7, uh, verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, 
a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. And then he went up, and he touched the bier. That's the, uh, like a coffin, I guess, from, from that time, that they were carrying him on. And the bearers stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up, and he began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Ah. And they were all filled with awe, and they praised God. And they said, a great prophet has, uh, has appeared among us. And they said, God has come to help his people. And this news, as you probably might imagine, about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Goodness me, what a story. What love, right, to do that thing and what power. So my preach today, if you want to make, uh, uh, if you're writing notes, it's called The Compassion and the Power of Jesus. The compassion and the power of Jesus. So let's start at the start, verse 11. It says, soon after. Let me just turn that over so I've got that reading there. Soon after. So soon after what? Well, if you remember back in, in November, it's soon after he had healed the centurion's daughter. So he's in, he starts in Nazareth, right? So Jesus starts his ministry in Nazareth, and then he starts to move south. Uh, and he's, this is called his Galilean ministry, and then he's going to go further south into Judea and Samaria. Remember the, the, the Samaritan woman at the well? And then eventually he'll end up at Jerusalem, and he's, it's three years, basically. It's not three years to do that in a straight line. He kind of went around, and a, but three years on the road from Nazareth down to Jerusalem, and he's got lots to do. <laughs> Lots of people to reach, lots of people to teach, and every day something's happening. Every day with Jesus. Can you imagine being one of his disciples, waking up? Right, what's, what's Jesus going to do today? Right, and every day he got up early, spent time with his father alone. We, we read that elsewhere in the Gospels. Every day on his journey towards Jerusalem, he is teaching his disciples, and he's meeting people. Every day he's doing good. Isn't that the truth today? Every day he is doing good. Still, through the Holy Spirit to us, he is doing good every day. There is no day off for Jesus doing good, touching people and helping them and helping us every single day. We can wake up and say, Jesus, what are you going to do today? I'm on board. I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm on board. I'm going to follow you like the disciples in this story. Let's go. Come on. So it's worth mentioning that, 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 that uh, Luke decides to tell the story of a centurion's uh, servant being healed, a non-Jew, a man in charge of many men. And so who's next after that very important man with his servant who chooses to tell the story in, in contrast with uh, a widow, and a widow's son? It's, a, it's an unlikely person. If you're talking about a saviour coming to save the people of Israel to save the Jews, 
First he helped the centurion's uh, servant, and then he helped a lowly widow, a just not someone of any influence, just an ordinary person like us, right? Just like he's got ordinary disciples, not learned scholars. He helps ordinary people. So verse 11, go back to the text. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the son, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. So that's two large crowds making one even larger crowd. It doesn't say how many people. Let's say, I don't know, how, if, if Jesus had maybe around 100 disciples and maybe some other people as well, 200 people, and then, and then, the, and then the, the funeral's coming out, maybe another 100, 200 people, something like that. But it's important to remember and to point out that when Jesus does stuff, there's always people there. There's always people watching. It's not, it's not done in secret. His ministry was so public, right? It's there for all to see. And I think that's really, really important for two reasons. One, to prove it's a true story. And two, so that the people who see it can spread the word, which we see happens later in the, in the passage. Um, I just thought I'd do a little sidebar here, because um, on my social media feeds, which I sometimes look at and try not to look at too much, uh, what I try and do is I, I, I press like and I follow, um, I follow things that are good for me. So a bit like Philippians 4, verse 8, whatever is pure, whatever is good, you know, set your mind on those things. So I try, I try and click on a few things that are, are good. And there's this one guy that I really like called Cliff, I don't even know how to say his second name, Konechkul, Nekul, something like that. Um, and he is an apologist, an apologist. He does apologetics, which is where you, you make a case to defend the gospel. And he goes around universities, and he speaks in public, and the students can come up to him and ask him any question, and he will debate with them. And he's brilliant. He's really worth looking up. If anyone wants to know his, how his name's spelt, I can, I can tell you afterwards. And he, he's, I, so this week, I, I just, it's just a brilliant little nugget. We all need help when we're... You know, in, in a world that is not Christian, and we are Christians, and we believe in Jesus. And he talks about this one person said, you can't prove that Jesus rose from the dead. You can't prove it. And um, show me how that's scientific, scientifically possible. And this guy was explaining and saying, you're actually, you're confusing two things, right? So for something to be scientifically provable, you have to be able to do an experiment in uh, whatever university, well, whatever, wherever you are, and for that experiment to be repeatable in a different place. And then you can prove it's, that it's true. Yeah? So more than one person can do it. But that's different to historical proof. You can't prove scientifically that um, Alexander the Great uh, invaded all of those places and, and made an entire empire so quickly. You can only historically prove that. And I think that's the same for Jesus, right? The, the important thing about the story of Jesus is that there were eyewitnesses. There were people who watched everything that he did. So when we talk to our 
when we talk out, out, outside with, with, with people, it's important to remember that, that you need to historically prove and you need to look at the evidence. And if the evidence is greater that he probably rose from the dead, which I believe he did, then that, that proves right. It's not scientific proof, it's historical proof. So I just, as a little sidebar there, I thought that was really helpful. You can't prove any more that Julius Caesar existed than Jesus, or Alexander the Great, or, Ca or Cleopatra. They're all historical figures. And that's why it's important. There's two crowds, one coming this way, coming back to the story, one coming this way, and they meet. There's a lot of people who see Jesus do this. So the crowd that's with Jesus, right, made up of disciples, wondering what's going to happen next, people who already believe he is the chosen one, people who are not sure and want to see what's going to happen next. I'm sure there's probably some cynical people in there, some people who just like a bit of street theatre and want to see what's going to happen next, all sorts. And then there's a crowd that are coming with the funeral, family members, neighbours, members of the, a local synagogue maybe where, where they're a part of the community, and that poor woman, that poor woman, She's lost her son. And it's her only son. And she hasn't got a husband either. So she's in a pretty bad way. And what happens when, when, a, when someone dies in that culture is that there's lots of, lots of ceremony about the body. The body is washed and prepared for burial. So that body would have been touched and been in contact with a lot of people before it was put on the bier, ready to be, be taken out of the town for, for burial. So these two large crowds meet, said that. So if Jesus is coming into a new town as well, there's no way that he's met these people before. Um, and I think it's quite usual in that culture also to see things like that, to see funerals. I think we forget in, 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 in our culture today, you very rarely see, unless I'm driving I, and you see a hearse with a body in it, it's very rare that you, you get to see funerals. They're quite kind of kept, kept to one side. Unless you're uh, involved in it, unless it's someone that you know, um, I think we, we forget that it's, it's quite, it, it, life and death are much closer together back then. And this poor woman, right, she's a widow already, she's lost her husband, and there's a real danger for her because there's no man to, in that culture, to protect her. She really is completely alone. And what does Jesus do? He has, he has such compassion on her. Verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. His heart went out to her. What a beautiful verse. Such compassion towards that one woman. In the midst of all that he's doing, he's in this three-year ministry. So much going on. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's modeling to his disciples but he still has time. He always has time for someone who's suffering, for someone who's grieving. Such compassion. 
he's ready to help this, this widow. And again, it's the same today, right? Jesus always has time. He always has time for anyone who is suffering, for anyone who is grieving. He has time for us. And he wants to comfort us. He wants to bring comfort to us. He wants to be there for us. I know he's got, you know, we are on mission and we are reaching people with the gospel of Jesus. But he has compassion on us. He loves us so much, just like he loved that widow. She, she's worn, uh, she's lost everything. And she didn't ask. He just, his heart went out to her. His heart went out to her. Jesus always has time. And just, again, I thought I'd do a little sidebar, sorry, a bit of, a bit of uh, a wisdom uh, about mourning. I don't know if you, uh, hopefully some, some of you, not all of you, have been through a period of mourning for someone that you love. But I learned something very important. So, so before we go on to where Jesus says don't cry, um, the reason he says that is because he knows what's about to happen. He knows what he's going to do. But I think when, when, you, when you mourn, uh, you do need to cry. And I, I learned something uh, through some counseling. I used to think that, I used to think all my, hap- I used to think my emotions were like two taps, a hot and a cold tap, right? So your, your, your hot tap, for example, is all your happy smiley stuff, and then your cold tap is your, is your sadness, or your grief, or your anger, so-called negative emotions, right? That's not, that's not true. That's not how emotions work. You actually have a mixer tap. You have a mixer tap, and all the emotions come down that same, that same spout. So if you stop the so-called negative, if you stop the grief, or the anger, all those difficult emotions that we feel when someone dies, you're stopping all of the happy stuff as well. And you need to be really careful. You need to be able to let that out. So I just encourage you, it's just a little you know, word of wisdom for, for anyone who needs to, to do a bit of mourning. Uh, I, I would encourage you to, to let yourself do that and know that by doing that, you will allow those happy emotions to come back as well. But anyway, back to the story. Verse 14, she, he, he says, on this occasion, don't cry. Don't cry, why? Because he knows what he's going to do. Right? Verse 14. He went up and he touched the beer. They were carrying him on. Sorry. He touched the beer, they were carrying him on. And the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. He touched the body. <gasps> what? He touched the body. He touched the body. He touched the body. That's a huge deal. That's a huge deal. In that culture, that body uh, is, because it's dead, is seen as unclean. And the minute you touch that body, you make yourself unclean. Uh, think of the, uh, the story, the, the Good Samaritan, the, the scribe, isn't it? He doesn't stop because he doesn't, want to be, he doesn't want to be made ritually unclean, so he passes by on the other side. Uh, all of the people would have known from Jewish culture that that's what was happening. He touched the body. So, if he touched the body, does, does, does Jesus become unclean? Does he, does he then become not holy? Well, what happens when he does touch the body? He brings him back to life. The young man is brought back to life. 
He was dead. He was dead, and Jesus resuscitates him and brings him, as it were, and brings him back to life. So he's no longer unclean. He's no longer unclean. So when Jesus touches something, when Jesus touches anything, he makes it holy. He makes it clean. And Jesus, in the Gospels, there's lots of stories of Jesus getting his hands dirty. He washes his disciples' feet, doesn't he? He touches the little girl in Matthew 9, who was dead, and and resuscitates her. He sat down and ate with tax collectors, who were, at that time, uh, seen as the scourge of society, these people who would collect money on behalf of the Romans. Remember Zacchaeus, who brings Zacchaeus out of the tree. Come down, Zacchaeus. I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to touch you. Yeah, he touched out. He, 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 he touched lepers as well. And, and they were seen at the time as contagious. They didn't know back then that, that leprosy wasn't contagious. And he, he touched them. And he made them clean. He touches everything around him, both physically while he was there, uh, 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 and also through his teaching, he touched people, he touches their hearts, he affects them. Now, uh, at the leaders, at the community group leaders meeting on Sunday, Nev shared with us uh, uh, about the, a little story about called the finger of God, and he, he uh, shared from Exodus where Moses and Aaron are with Pharaoh, remember they're asking Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh, in order to try and get rid of these two guys, had his own magicians who would try and replicate some of the plagues that God was bringing, bringing down on the Egyptian people. And they were able to replicate some of them. And then it gets to uh, Exodus 8, verse 19, the plague of gnats. And um, they can't do it. They can't replicate it. And so they turn to Pharaoh and they say, this This is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. We can't deny that this is God. And then it goes on to the last plague, the last plague, which is the death of the firstborn. God who has power over death. And the Jews who believed in God and wanted to save themselves from death, what did they do? They put the lamb's blood, didn't they, over there. Where's my jaw? My jaw's here. So we eat the lamb, Passover, and we put the blood of the lamb over the door, and that means that their firstborn will be safe from death. This is God who has power over death. Touch of God, the finger of God. And then here's Jesus walking around Israel and Judea, and he is God in human form, and he's talking to people who know all about these stories, who know all about Exodus and the saving of the Jewish people and the the Passover lamb and the blood on the door. And he's raising people from the dead. They'd know those stories in the Old Testament. They'd know the finger of God. Then he went up and he touched the bier that they were carrying him on and the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, get up. Now, if there was ever evidence for Jesus being the son of God, powerful Jesus, to the people of Israel at the time, surely authority over life and death. Surely that's evidence for Jesus being the 
the Son of God. He can even talk to a dead person and bring him back to life. Wow. 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 I don't, I don't know what to say other than, than, wow, what an amazing God we serve. A God who has the authority over life and death. And this is Jesus in God in human form. And he was there at the beginning of time. It says at the beginning of John, doesn't it? The word was with God in the beginning. During creation, this is a God who can bring something out of nothing. He can create something from nothing. He can bring life out of death. Incredible. That's the God we serve. That's the God we serve, someone who has power over life and death. So let's look at the reaction of the two crowds when it happens, and therefore what our reaction should be. As you might imagine, <laughs> they were filled with awe, firstly, and they praised God. They praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. Wow. Verse 16. So we saw the compassion to the widow. Now we see the power. We need to witness to the power of Jesus. We need to be filled with awe, again, at the powerfulness of Jesus. The power of, there is power in the name of Jesus. You remember that old song? There's power in the name of Jesus. We believe in his name. He brought someone back from life. Uh, sorry, back to life from death. Amazing. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. When Peter and John heal the paralyzed man in Acts 3, they call on the name of Jesus. That's where the power is. And this miracle, raising someone from the dead, is a little foretaste of the greatest miracle that ever happened, that ever, ever happened. That Jesus died and rose again. The finger of God, the mighty God that brought Jesus back from the dead. See, a bit like the Passover lamb, if we believe in Jesus, if we have the blood of Jesus... On our, on our doorposts, as it were, we have the blood of Jesus, who's called the Lamb of God, then we won't die. So the people that Jesus, uh, I say, resusc- I was talking to Matt this morning, resuscitated rather than raised, because the, uh, the, the widow's son and, 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 the, and the, the little girl um, and Lazarus, they all went on to die again, didn't they? Hopefully at a, a ripe old age. Yeah? But when Jesus died, and when he rose again, he's, he's, he's risen in his new resurrection body. And we've got that to look forward to. When we die, and when we go to heaven, we will be resurrected in our new resurrection body. That's what it says in the Bible. I'm looking forward to that. I really am. My knees are looking forward to that. Yeah? It's going to be fantastic. There is power in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. There's only one source of true life, true blessing, and that is God. God who wants to reach out and touch us. And when Jesus touches us, 
we who are unclean, he makes us clean. He makes us whiter than snow. It says that in, in Psalm 51. He makes us as white as snow. If we confess our sins, we put the blood of Jesus on the doorpost, just like the Jews did in the Passover. Jesus came and he became that new covenant for us. That if we believe in him, we will not die. We will not perish. We will have eternal life. Amen. Back to verse 17. This news about Jesus, as you might imagine, <laughs> spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. So I'm not expecting us all to go and witness about the resurrection of the widow's son. But I am expecting us all to go and witness about the resurrection of ourselves because before we were Christians, we were dead. We were spiritually dead and Jesus has brought us to life. We are spiritually alive only and only because Jesus died on that cross. And that's what we share when we go out into the world. You just need to live your life modeling Jesus and, and, and you'll be watched. There's no doubt about that. If they know you're a Christian, it's very important that people know you're a Christian because then they'll, they'll go, oh, I'm not sure about you, you're a Christian. And then, and then they'll see the way you act and they'll go, oh, there's something different about you. And then the glory goes to God. They won't just think you're a nice person. The glory goes to God if they know that you're a Christian. And news about Jesus will spread throughout Putney and throughout London. Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it's by grace that you've been saved. And God raises us up with Christ, who is seated with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Oh my goodness, amazing. We need to be filled with that awe. We need to be filled with that wonder. We need to remember his compassion. If you're going through a tough time, it's, it's so important to remember this God that we serve is both filled with compassion, filled with power. Uh, band, why don't you come up? I'm kind of coming down to land now. Um, and just a couple of prophetic notes, really, to end with. Um, firstly, if you've lost someone, if you are grieving or you have grieved or you don't feel like you've finished your grieving, whatever it might be, I just encourage you to talk to someone today because Jesus has compassion for you. He, he, his heart goes out to you this morning. It's important to remember that, not to, not to push it away. Uh, it's an important part of life, grieving. I just wanted to remind you of that. And the other thing is, is uh, I think sometimes, just bring it back to Frankenstein, some, sometimes we can try, if we're trying to make things happen and, we've, and, and we kind of try and force God's hand because we think it's a good idea, it can be a bit like Dr. Frankenstein bringing this uh, uh, entity to life. And it's not real life, it's our version of what we think life ought to be. Um, so if, if you've got, again, specifically, I don't know why, but specifically people in business, businessmen, people in commerce, if you've got ideas uh, and, and they feel a bit dead and you're looking for a touch of God this morning, I just 
encourage you to get prayer for that. If you hand this over to God and let him touch it, he's the one that can truly bring life. Because he's the only one that can bring something out of nothing. He's the only one who can bring life out of death. Just pray this morning that we would feel a fresh touch 